you know that God won't necessarily change your unrepentant, sexually addicted spouse just because you ask him to? Hi, I'm Kim Pullen, founder of Hope for Spouses, and welcome to this episode of Lunchtime Live. For those of you who are new to our ministry, I started Hope for Spouses about four and a half years ago, almost five years ago, when my husband and I were reconciled due to his adultery. And while we were apart, I just really tried super hard to focus on my own recovery. I did a so-so job with it. But while we were apart, I just tried to surrender him to God and let God work on his heart. And God worked on both of ours. He worked on my character and transforming my character, helping me to see my sin. And he really did work in my husband's life. Now, we've been back, back together for almost five years. And we have an amazing marriage. It's so different from what it was before. And both of us really give the credit to God because we have put him at the center of our relationship. And the trust has been restored and we have an incredibly emotionally and spiritually intimate marriage. Now, when we were first separated, I prayed all the time for, for my husband. I prayed that he would change. I prayed that he would wake up to what he was doing. And I figured that he would get over the stupidity of being with an affair partner after three months. I mean, six months tops. But when he only seemed to dive deeper into his sin, I had to reconsider that my expectations from God, I, I had to think differently about him. It's like something wasn't right. And so after years of disappointment, the spirit led me to correct some erroneous conclusions uh, I had come to by revealing what scriptures actually revealed contextually about prayer, the nature of God and the kind of healthy expectations that I needed to have. So the first thing I had to address was incorrect assumptions about God. Now there are at least 11 scriptures that tell us God will give us what we ask for in prayer. Matthew 18, 19, 21, 22, uh, Mark 11, 24, John 14, 13, 15, 7, 15, 16, and 16, 23 to 24, James 1, 5 through 6 and 17, and 1 John 3, 22, uh, and chapter 5, verse 14 to 15. Now, we're going to just look at two of those. We're going to look at Matthew 21, 22, which says, if you believe, you will receive what you ask for in prayer. And then 1 John 5, 14 and 15 says, this is the confidence that we have in approaching God, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that, that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have what we asked of him. So I read scriptures like these and asked myself, if this is true, then why isn't God answering my prayer to change my wayward husband? I mean, can you relate? We've sat tight for weeks, months, or even years, staying with an unrepentant, sexually addicted, or unfaithful partner, often enduring emotional, spiritual, sexual, financial, or even physical abuse, all while praying fervently and faithfully in God's power to change our spouse. But when God doesn't answer, we can start to feel embittered, despondent, and even resentful of God. We can beat ourselves up that we don't have enough faith, and that's why our prayer isn't working. We can start thinking we're the problem, and that God's word doesn't really apply to us or our individual situation. 
ultimately it can lead us to hopelessness, depression, and despair. That's why it's so important that we read each of these scriptures in context to the rest of the Bible. As the Bible projects like, like the Bible project, that's a, a wonderful organization that puts out all these really cool videos. They say the scriptures, the Old and New Testament, are one unified overarching story that ultimately leads us to Jesus. So we have to be very careful. We aren't pulling scriptures out of their original context. But the verses I shared are only 11. The, ver the verses on prayer, those are only 11 out of more than 31,000 verses in the whole Bible. So we have to make sure that we're taking those 11 verses in the whole context of Scripture. Now, the truth is, God does answer prayers, but not always the way we expect or tell Him to. Think of how we are with our own children. Our child may ask us for a truckload of candy, a BB gun, or a pair of skinny jeans and a half top. But a parent knows what their children need better than the kids, so they're going to provide for them what they need rather than what they want. Now, if you're a parent, you know that this can, this can lead to resentment on the part of our kids. How many of us ever heard, you don't understand. Why can't I have this? You don't understand. So, and why? Because they don't have the maturity, the experience, and the wisdom that we have. Now, in the same way, God will sometimes protect us from ourselves or from something that will bring us harm by not giving us what we ask for. But how can not answering my prayer by changing my unrepentant husband possibly be what is best for me when God is for marriage? Right? Have you ever asked yourself that question? So first, we have to understand the truth about God's character. So when God made Adam and Eve, he gave them something that he didn't give any other part of creation. He gave them free will. Now, God didn't want robots. That's why he did that. He gave us the opportunity to choose. And he wants us to choose to love and obey him. Hence, the tree of good and evil in the middle of the garden. So in other words... God set boundaries on himself. Yes, he is the only one who can give us a heart, as he says, a heart of flesh, as opposed to a heart of stone in Ezekiel 36, 26 through 27. But he's not going to force that on us. He's not going to force us to have a soft heart. God doesn't draft us into any kind of an army. All right. He invites us into his family. Deuteronomy 30, 19 through 20 says, This day I call heaven and earth as witnesses against you that I have set before you life and death, blessings and curses. Now choose life so that you and your children may live and that you may love the Lord your God, listen to his voice and hold fast to him. Now just like the God in the Old Testament, in the New Testament, Jesus too gave people the choice to follow him or not to follow him. But he, he, both God in the Old Testament and Jesus in the New Testament, he gave us the opportunity. He said, this is the, this is the two choices that you have. You choose what you're going to do. And there are countless scriptures where Jesus laid out his conditions for discipleship. 
and then left it up to his followers. In Luke 9, 58 to 62, Jesus challenged three different men who said they wanted to follow him, but he clarified those conditions probably because he sensed their immature understanding of the commitment. And then in 1 John 6, 60 and 66, it says that on hearing how loyal that Jesus required his, his followers to be, they, they said many of his disciples said to him, this is a hard teaching, who can accept it? And from this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. It was too hard. And then in Mark 10, 17 to 22, the rich young ruler, uh, it says that Jesus looked at him and he loved him. But he ultimately walked away sad because he wasn't willing to pay the price of discipleship, which was making Jesus the Lord of every area of his life. And for him, his God was his wealth. And he wasn't willing to trade his wealth for Jesus. So in Romans, Paul says in uh, chapter 1, verses 18 to 33, that even though God has provided all the evidence we need to believe in him, as our sovereign Lord, that many of us choose our sin or our idols over God, and he's not going to fight us on it, even if we continue to resist him, especially if we continue to resist him, that he's going to let us go, and he's going to let us suffer the consequences of our sin. Now, did he harden the hearts of those people? No. They did. They're the ones that chose. He gave them the choice and they chose to say, no, I'm not going to obey God. I'm going to choose this and that that sin hardened their hearts. So they're the ones that chose it. They're the one that, that chose to let their sin become hardened. And God just stepped out of the way. So we can't stay in repeated sin without it scarring our hearts. Now, big question. Does God harden people's hearts? So apparently, we know one, he hardened Pharaoh's heart in Exodus 9, 12. But that was only after God gave Pharaoh five chances, performed major plagues, miracles, gave him five chances to change. And Pharaoh, it says Pharaoh hardened his own heart. So by number six, God's like, okay, I'm going to use that. And he did to, to prove his glory. But in Romans 9, 18, it says that God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy, and he hardens whom he wants to harden. So sometimes we can be like, well, what if he would have changed on number six? You know, that wasn't fair to God. Well, obviously, God knows a lot better than we do. He lives in the past, present, and the future. So he probably saw every possibility of which way Pharaoh was going to go, but he was going to just choose to be disobedient and disrespectful to God, to be obstinate. And so... I want to encourage you to, if, if that still bothers you, to go ahead and read the whole chapter of Romans 9, because Paul gets a little bit more deep into that, and we really can't cover all that in this episode. But ultimately, God won't change his immutable laws to answer our prayers for a spouse who refuses to repent. Now, he will allow them to suffer the consequences of their sin, as he says, giving them over in Romans. Uh, and Galatians even says, do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. Whoever sows to please their flesh from that flesh will reap destruction. Whoever sows to please the spirit from the spirit will reap eternal life. So what tends to happen in our pain and our self-centeredness for 
for all of us are self-centered in some way or another. So we may feel like we are at the center of the universe and that we are the main characters in the story. But like I said in last week's episode, episode number 84, we aren't the protagonists. We are here playing a supporting role. Jesus is the protagonist and we are here to support his story. So what do we do with this? No, so we need to have biblical expectations of God, our spouse, and ourselves. All right. So there's a really great book uh, by Sky Jathani called With. And in that, he describes the five postures that we can have in our relationship with God. The first is life over God. The next, life under God life for God, life from God, and life with God. Now, the first four may sound innocuous enough. I mean, you know, they're, they may sound like, yeah, those are okay, but they're actually very unhealthy and unbiblical. The one, uh, the one in particular that applies in what we're talking about here is the attitude of life from God, that we go to church and we pray and we do all these religious things. We could be on the worship team. You know, we could you know, be going to a Bible studies every week or whatever. And so we feel like that entitles us to God answering whatever we pray for. And that if he doesn't, he's reneging on his end of some deal or agreement we think we made with him. But God isn't a vending machine. God wants to have a relationship with us on his terms, not ours. And as well, the creator of the universe, he has the right to expect it. So he wants to walk with us. And that's much more intricate, purposeful, and even more difficult in some ways than just living a religious life. Now in 1 Peter 3.12, it says that God hears every one of our prayers. In Psalm 56, 8, that he says he catches every one of our tears. He's very aware of our struggle and our pain. But in Hebrews 12, 4 to 11, it says that just like a good father, he's going to give us what we need when we need it. He's going to discipline us. And then in Isaiah 55, 8 and 9, it says that he answers our prayers in his time frame and in his way. And as the perfect father, he sees the needs of his entire family. That's all the disciples around the world and he's working to bring about his will which is the best for all of us collectively you can see that in Romans 8 28 where he talks about that so what should our expectations be for our spouse now is it God's will for our spouse to change absolutely First Timothy 2, 4 says that God wants all men to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth he wants everybody to go to heaven but he's realistic. In, in Matthew, it talks about how the, the, the road is narrow. There's not a lot of people are going to go to heaven that are going to gain eternal life. God is very aware of that. And, but he's not going to force someone to make the choice to follow the truth. He's not going to force somebody to accept his salvation. Now, even Jesus had choices. I mean, Jesus had to make the choice to leave heaven to fulfill God's plan. And when he was in human form, he had to choose to 
uh, not to sin and to remain in obedience to God every single day, multiple, multiple times throughout the day. And then in Matthew 26, 39, it tells he had to choose to submit to the cross, you know, to align himself and his will with God's will in spite of the pain that was going to come. So I want to encourage you to change your prayers from asking God to change your spouse's heart to asking for your spouse to suffer, to quickly suffer the consequences of their sin in the hopes that they'll turn to God like the prodigal son did in Luke 15, 11 to 24. And like Isaiah says in chapter 55 too, pray that they will see their sin that is not satisfying to them, that they are running after it like bread that will never, never fill them up. It will not meet the needs that only God can meet inside of them. Okay. Now, what about us? Now, we definitely need to keep praying for our spouse. I'm not saying don't pray for them, but let's modify our expectations. So you can't change your spouse. There's nothing that you can do to push your spouse to do anything. You can change yourself, but you can't change them. So we need to do whatever we can to not enable them, to, but kind of step out of the way and let the consequences fall on our spouse. Because we don't want to keep them from suffering the consequences of their sin, or they're going to stay in it longer because they're not feeling the punishment. So we want them to feel those consequences. Now, we can also really focus on living with a heart and a mind like Abigail from 1 Samuel 25, who was righteous even though she was married to a fool, uh, a sinful fool. He was hard-hearted, Nabal. It was a very hard-hearted man. Uh, but like Abigail, we need to align our will with God's will. Okay, so the first thing we have to do is we have to have the same goal, all right? The same goal as Jesus had, because we're calling ourselves Christians. We need to have the same goal as Jesus, and that is to please God by fulfilling our part in Jesus's mission. Now, what was this mission? Okay, it was to seek and save the lost. Now, if you don't know how to teach someone to become a disciple of Jesus, using the scriptures, not what you heard from the pulpit or from your parents or from anybody else, but if you don't know how to teach someone how to become a disciple using the scriptures, then you need to learn how to become a disciple of Jesus first yourself. All right. Number three, we need to have the same purpose that Jesus had, regardless of our spouse's choice to change. And that purpose is to be conformed into the image of Jesus. Now, our purpose is not to have a great marriage. I'm going to say that again because it is super important. Our purpose on this planet is not to have a great marriage. A great marriage is the fruit when both partners are fulfilling their purpose to be conformed to the image of Christ. Now, if we get this backwards, if we put the cart, the cart before the horse, okay, then we make our marriage a weak and ineffectual idol in which we get as little fulfillment from as our unfaithful spouse is getting from their addiction. It doesn't fill us up. So we have to make sure that we are in line with God's purpose, his mission, and, and the goal that we have in this life. Now, I'm going to post all these scriptures in the description section, but I, I don't want you to take my word for this. Okay, this is my heart. These are my convictions, but I don't want you to take 
what I say on fact. I want you to develop your own convictions on this by studying out these scriptures on your own. Okay, now if you have lived with these incorrect assumptions about God changing your unfaithful spouse, if you become angry or embittered with God because he isn't living up to your expectations, I mean, disappointment reigns in your life. And if you want to transform how you think about your partnership with God, especially when it comes to your marriage and recovery from betrayal, then I want to encourage you to schedule a call. Go to hopeforspouses.com slash call. Again, that's hopeforspouses.com slash call. We'll get on the phone for about 45 minutes or an hour and we'll talk through your situation. I'll give you a chance to really be heard. We're going to you know, open up the scriptures. We're going to give you some clarity biblically. And then I'll do what I can to provide you some resources so that you can start moving forward on your healing journey. Okay, so that concludes the thoughts for today. I want to encourage you to keep praying. Definitely keep praying. Just modify it a little bit. Okay, so uh, that's it for this week. We will see you next time on the Hope for Spouses Lunchtime Live. I'm Kim Pullen. Take care.